Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovic. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's Player. Dot .fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Boltovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and it's another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest, and you've got the Bose Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and I'm your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner, and boy, we got a lot to talk about this afternoon. We had delayed our show by a day because I had to go up to Salem yesterday to testify on the uh what they call cap and invest uh, bill, which is basically a carbon taxing system uh, by any other name. Uh, and we'll talk a bit more about that, but there's just you know all sorts of things going on. We've got the Secretary of State releasing his audit of the uh, OLCC's oversight of the pot system and whether they have enough inspectors or not. We've got uh, open burning bans going on here in Lane County and uh, local sales taxes being proposed up in Hood River County and just all sorts of things to talk about here today on the Bose Nose Show. But as almost every day is, it's a free-for-all day. If you call me, you can talk about what you want to talk about and change the subject anytime you want. And we'll talk about what you want to talk about because that's more important to me than what I want to talk about. Just call it 646-721-9887, and that lets you get in on the show. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets you uh, get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. So yesterday, I went all the way up to Salem to testify on this uh, House Bill 4001 and Senate Bill 1507. They had a joint hearing for the two bills, so there was representatives and senators in the room of the uh, two different committees that are hearing this, the uh, Senate Committee on Environment and Natural Resources and the House Committee on Energy and Environment. And um, it was interesting uh, to go up there because it was obviously going to be a big hearing. They planned to have it at 3 o'clock. They knew it was going to go more than two hours. So they had already scheduled a recess at 5 so they could go get some dinner, and then they were going to come back at 5.30 and keep hearing people to whenever. I don't even know when they ended. Uh, But they started out, you know, with some introductory comments from the two chairs and all that stuff. When they finally got to to testimony, they took invited panels first. And the 
chair basically said he was going to give a half hour to the pro side and a half hour to the anti side uh, of invited panels. And uh, the first two panels were pro panels and they went over 45 minutes and then they they gave the anti one panel that took about 40 minutes, but it was mostly because there was a lot of questions from uh, committee members to the anti panel that ran them long. Uh, but it was kind of, you know, those folks didn't weren't on a timer and there was two county commissioners on the first pro panel, um, one from Multnomah County and one from Lincoln County, and they got to talk for five minutes or so and then got to answer questions and all that stuff. After those two, you know, set panels, they started alternating pro panels and, and, and opposing panels and with a two minute timer on it. And I was in the first opposing panel after that. And uh, the pro panel that went before us, they didn't allow the committee members to ask any questions of them because they wanted that they were just in a, in a crunch for time. So I get up there and I'm the first county commissioner to be speaking. And by the way, I, I've, the other two county commissioners were speaking as individual commissioners. I was speaking on behalf of my board because our board had taken a vote to oppose the bills in the short session. So I was speaking on behalf of the entire board. I was limited to two minutes, no allowing for questions and answers from the committees. Uh, whereas the two folks that were commissioners that were speaking in favor got all the time they really wanted and got to answer questions from the committees. Uh, so kind of just giving you a picture of, of the disparity in, in the setup there. So I was already, you know, watching that take place already had me a little bit um, amped up and I kind of read, read, uh, didn't read my testimony as written. I submitted my written testimony to the board, but basically, you know, in two minutes, you barely have time to get a, a coherent thought out uh, and basically spent my time saying that, that it was really wrong to be doing this in a short session when the bill was first put out to the public in its final form 15 days ago. And they're going to, they're already a couple days in the short session, which means less than 60 days for action on this bill from the time the public got to read it to when they were going to try and have it all done and said. And that was not enough time to get adequate public input for a fair and transparent process, open and transparent process. And then in, in addition to that, they put emergency clauses on both bills in an attempt to limit the people's right to initiative. And that was wrong. So, you know, basically, I spent most of my time talking about that and the fact that the impact of these bills hasn't been analyzed yet. There's no analysis available on on the uh, legislative websites of these bills from the legislative fiscal office or anything like that. So we don't know what the impact of these bills, let alone what they're going to do to local government. So I kind of made two points was one, they're rushing this. It wasn't a open and transparent process shouldn't have an emergency clause on it, and also the unknown impact to local government. What was what kind of unfunded mandate de facto they were going to be passing on to us. But um, so it was kind of a, kind of interesting. And of course, I'm listening to the proponents of this, and they're all talking about climate change and sea level rise and everything else. But no one's actually addressing the nuts and bolts of the bill, except for the people speaking in opposition. And there was some excellent testimony by a gentleman from, I think it's PG&E, um, 
who talked about what they already are achieving in previous bills, which is my written testimony covers somewhat too, is there's actually bills already working on the carbon emissions issues in this state. So this is a new system they wanna throw in on top of all of that, this cap and trade system of, uh, that's going to raise energy bills, it's gonna raise the price of food, uh, it's just you know all around going to increase um, inflation in this state going to raise the cost of energy, which is built into everything you buy. You know, just that's a everything you buy takes energy. It takes energy to you know grow food. It takes energy to transport food. It takes energy to to store it while it's in the store. Uh, you know, it takes you energy to bring it home. So you know, when you think about just feeding yourself, what a carbon tax will do to your cost of living. So it was just, it was interesting to listen to the testimony, the, the emotional side of, of, of the pro side, and, you know, we have, you know, all, all the, what you know, emergency climate change is and everything else. That's great, but we already have the clean fuels bill that addresses carbon in the transportation system, which is the major contributor to carbon emissions in the state of Oregon. We've got the uh, green energy bill that was passed way back and, and actually um, in 2007, Oregon's renewable portfolio standard was adopted. And in 2016, the energy folks came to the, the legislature and agreed to a bill that upped the targets on that because they didn't want to have something new happen. They wanted the surety to be able to be moving forward with uh, both their investors and their ratepayers. Uh, this is this is the lay of the land now, and they agreed to a 50% renewable target by 2040. And of course, you know, almost all renewables are carbon uh, zero carbon type. Uh, well, they say they're zero carbon. I, I, you, they never count the energy it takes to build the facilities. Um, or the carbon that goes into building the facilities a lot of times. Let's just say they're they're low carbon sources. So you know it was they're already working towards in the power generation side and the transportation side, very low carbon emissions. And, and in general, technology is working towards that also as we get better and better electric vehicles. Um, you know, better and better solar panels, all the stuff that's going in, in on in technology that's changing our carbon footprint daily anyhow. But um, that doesn't matter to these folks. For some reason, all that work that's already going on, and that doesn't count what we're doing with our land use laws to limit carbon footprint. Because that gets into a whole nother place where we actually have in, written into our land use laws um, that we have to design our cities now to reduce vehicle miles traveled, encourage active transportation and mass transit and other forms, uh, you know, these walkable neighborhoods where people aren't using cars. You know, that's also buried in all the existing uh, stuff that we're doing to limit carbon in this state. So we, we already have stuff that's working on this, but for some reason, a huge complex carbon capping system for so first of all you have to figure out how you're going to set up the cap what it's going to be based on then you've got to set up some kind of way of allocating carbon allocations to various industries and 
whether existing industries get you know a freebie cap and they have to buy additional when they expand and who's eligible for that you know so you can imagine that's a hugely complex system then you have to have a system to auction those carbon allowances and then then a system for trading those allowances once they're owned by people and all that so just think about setting up a mini new york stock exchange in oregon now when was the last time oregon tried to set up an exchange oh yeah insurance how'd that work out oregon 300 million dollars and no exchange so just think about how complex that is and it's something they want to do in five days but it's an emergency and we have to do it in 35 days because we've already got clean fuels. We've already got the Green Energy Act. We've already got our land use laws. We've already got multiple other efforts that are working to control greenhouse gases, but those don't count. It's an emergency. We have to put an emergency clause on these because once we pass the bills, we don't want the citizens to have the right of collecting signatures and challenging what we put in place in 35 days. And people wonder why the legislature has got such a low approval rating amongst the citizenship. I mean, really, I, can you tell I'm a little fired up about this? What do you think, Robin? Uh, uh, that was a rhetorical question. But. <laughs> well, no, I, I totally agree with you that, uh, I mean, listening to what you're saying just so far kind of emphasizes the point that it they, they need to be audited and not not uh, abuse that emergency clause yeah it just it it really the the abuse of the emergency clause by the legislature you know and these are the same people that will tell you that having to present id to get your voter registration to prove you're actually legally in the county you're registered to vote and that you're you're illegally eligible to vote to get yourself registered is a form of voter suppression, yet the emergency clause is not. You know, the 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 logical dysphoria that you have to have to call one thing voter suppression and the other one not just amazes me. That you know that that whole use of the emergency clause just fries me. It's something that should be used only in a true emergency, and there has to be justification for it. And any bill that has the emergency clause on it should have to have a supermajority of some kind. Not to mention that this is really a revenue bill and should be treated as a revenue bill also, which requires a supermajority. But that's a whole other technical issue in the cap and trade taxing system that they're getting ready to put in place. You know, it's really... Um, you know, it's going to generate this huge amount of revenue for the state when they sell the allocations out to industry. That's that's technically how the state gets money from this. And uh, that's that's really and then they're supposed to that then that gets to the other side of the bill, which, you know, talk about complex things. The state's going to reinvest those those revenues from selling the allocations into various things that are going to stimulate the economy and make up for the loss of jobs caused by the higher energy costs, you know? 
And somehow or another, that's going to be an efficient use of capital in our economic system. That the state's going to take this money in through the carbon tax, you know, develop some kind of huge bureaucracy, take the money in, and then reallocate it in some way efficiently that's going to generate more jobs than will be lost from them taking it out of our economy in the first place. I don't think that's going to happen. And you know, does that mean that's a good time to hurt in between? I was going to say, does that mean it's a good time in, to invest in U-Haul uh, stock? In U-Haul stock? Oh, yeah, it may be. And United Van Lines and a few other. You know, what's crazy is this state is now one of the top states for folks to migrate to. People want to move to Oregon. And this is just like, okay, you want to turn Oregon into a backwater past this system because it's going to cause you know, great economic upheaval for very little benefit. You know, it doesn't get, you know, doesn't even get to the fact that Oregon is one of the lowest carbon emitting states in the U.S., has one of the highest energy efficiencies already per capita in the U.S. Um, you know, they're, they're in so many ways, Oregon is not the problem when it comes to climate change. So why are we going to punish the citizens of Oregon and raise their energy prices and all that to try and resolve a very small piece of the problem. It won't turn the dial very far on total carbon in the atmosphere. We're not where you need to turn the dial, you know, if that's your concern. And we're already turning the dials in Oregon. That's the whole point of the, the idea of the clean fuels bill, the green energy uh, targets in, in that previous bill, that all that stuff is already turning the dials. and, and lowering carbon emissions. In fact, there's some cities that have taken local action, like the city of Eugene has its own um, carbon reduction targets. You know, so there, it, there's already things happening in Oregon without this whole system being put in place in 35 days with an emergency clause. You know, so that, that's really, you know, if, if the legislature goes through with this, I predict they'll they'll be at one of their most all-time lows as far as approval rating goes from from the populace. Because you know, really, when you think about it, if you were one of the elite few that was appointed to one of the work groups that has been supposedly working on this bill for the last year, the first time the public got to see this bill was 15 days ago, 15 days from yesterday, I should say, 16 days ago now. But we're already four days into a 35-day session, so you can kind of add that together. Um, and, and we're basically 49 days or something like that from start from bill being published to the public to when they're going to take final action. And they could actually have the final votes in the legislature well before the end of the 35 days. You know, that's a really short time clock. Think about things that we have to do here locally, like land use decisions. We usually have to publish our public hearings 30 days in advance for a simple land use decision. If somebody wants to, to uh, you know, get a special exception for a home occupation on a piece of property, that notice has to go out to the neighbors 30 days in advance of us holding the hearing. And even then, they give us 150 days to get all of our local decision making done on land use decisions. But they're going to do cap and invest carbon taxing system extraordinaire 
hugely complex in less time than they give us to make a land use decision. And they're gonna put an emergency clause on it so that if the decision doesn't match what you want or if there's some part of it you wanna to refer to voters, they've basically banned you from doing so and taking away your right to initiative under the Oregon Constitution by throwing an unnecessary emergency clause on a bill that is not an emergency. So, you know, if they wanna take this up in the long session where they can have adequate public hearings and there's time for everybody to look through the bill and everything, I'm all for that for 2019. There's no need to rush this through right now. Absolutely no need. And that's basically what my message was, basically what my written testimony says. If you ever wanna see the written testimony, you can actually go to, uh, there's a great system in Oregon. Uh, if you type in OLIS into your Google uh, search thing, that's the Oregon Legislative Information System called OLIS, and you can get on there and you can look up bills uh, for this session. There's a little tab off to the right that says bills, and you can put in uh, 4001 for the House Bill 4001 or HB 4001, you get to the bill there, and you can actually go to the uh, materials for the committee there uh, or exhibits, and uh, you can actually find my written testimony in all those materials and a bunch of other people's written testimony, which I'm sure you could probably find the guy from uh, Pacific Gas and Electric and some of his great testimony, some of the folks from the Farm Bureau's great testimony about what this is gonna do to food prices and how it's gonna hurt farmers that are selling uh, their, their products outside of the state in the commodities market where they don't have the ability to raise the prices because some local law raised their costs and how that may impact the ability for farmers to actually make it in the state of Oregon. Something that we have all these laws trying to, to protect farmland in our land use laws, and then we're gonna turn around and punish farmers with our, our taxation system and make them non-competitive with the rest of the world in a, in a world market. So I, it just, boggles my mind that, that that level of complexity has not been analyzed. There's nothing available for the public to look at, you know, so you, you kind of have to take the word of the person from the Oregon Farm Bureau versus the word of some supporter and kind of compare the two, but there's no independent analysis by the uh, legislative fiscal office or the budget office about how this whole thing's going to go how that, you know, none of that will probably be available before decisions are made or before the public input process is over with. Because my guess is this is the one and only hearing these two bills are going to get, the public's going to be allowed to speak at. And uh, that's it. We're done. We're supposed to give all our input based on something that was printed 15 days before the hearing and is 34 pages long and written in legalese and with no analysis attached on, on economics or financial impact or anything. And uh, that's how we're supposed to give adequate public input. Is that open and transparent government? I don't think so. Now, I know that we would be hearing bloody heck if we ever tried to do something like that as the Board of Commissioners. Speaking of bloody heck, I, I got an opportunity to, you know, 
watch a public hearing in, in action today as a board member for the Lane Regional Air Protection Agency. And we had a hearing today on open burning uh, law changes under Title 47 of our code uh, for the Eugene, uh, UGB areas, which are areas that are outside the city of Eugene limits, but in Lane County, but inside this imaginary donut called the urban growth boundary. So there's this little kind of donut of land there. But really, when you think about it, those folks are not, they can't vote for a city councilor. They can't call for a Eugene police officer. They are county residents. So we're having this discussion about you know, changing some of our open burning laws and maybe making them a little bit more restrictive because we've been getting a lot of neighbor to neighbor complaints about burning. And right now, the, the rules are that if you have a lot that's a half acre or larger, you can burn yard debris. And of course, there's a lot of restrictions on what you're allowed to burn. It's supposed to be woody debris, uh, not supposed to be generating a lot of smoke. The size of the pile is limited. You can't burn things like grass clippings that generate a lot of smoke. You know, that you can't burn, you know, building materials. You can't, you know, tires, you know, all this stuff you shouldn't burn. But um, we're looking at possibly increasing the parcel size because that might, you know, that extra bit of room uh, and getting it off the smaller parcels might help a little bit. And once you get over a certain size parcel, it's hard to get rid of yard debris through things like hauling it through Exodus or chipping it or whatever because of how much can be generated on a larger parcel. So we, I thought we were kind of looking at the choice between going between one, three, or five acre parcels. Betty Taylor, a city councilor from Eugene, who sits on the El Rapa board. And El Rapa is actually made up of five jurisdictions. Lane County, the city of Eugene, the city of Springfield, the city of Cottage Grove, and the city of Oak Ridge. And we all have representation there. But city of Eugene, when El Rapa was originally formed, got extra board members because they have a larger population, which makes some sense. In, in some ways, with the exception of what happened today. So Councillor Taylor makes this motion to ban, completely ban any outdoor burning inside the UGB, but outside of city limits. And she gets a second from somebody on the board that lives inside city limits and gets enough yes votes with one extra yes vote coming from somebody that lives in Springfield, but is very much um, it is basically uh, um, an environmentalist imposed the ban. It was a 4-3 vote uh, where the rest of the board, and there were two board members that weren't there that both live outside of Eugene, a Springfield city councilor and a the mayor of um, Oak Ridge that couldn't attend the meeting. So we had a 4-3 vote to ban. And, and at that point, it was a done deal. There's no way to reverse that vote, really, unless we go back and go through the hearing process to reamend, um, to publicize the change. So uh, basically, the city of Eugene was able, through El Rapa, to impose their will on citizens that do not live inside city limits. And something about that is just wrong in my mind. And I, I, I'm not sure what to do about it. I think there needs to be some kind of change in El Rapa's bylaws or something that when it comes to voting on something that does not impact 
people inside Eugene city limits that there has to be a majority of board members that that are from outside a city you know that, that support it. It, it, it there's just there's something not right about uh, the city of Eugene being able to dominate uh, due to absences and dictate to folks that live outside their city limits because uh, it was pretty clear that uh, I don't think that the, the two folks absent would have voted yes on that and uh, I, I you know that just you know, I, I have defended El Rapa in the past. I did it on this program just a few weeks ago when when the when the uh, audit of the Department of Environmental Quality at the state level came out and showed how far behind they are on renewing permits and El Rapa is not behind. I really like local control government, but it has to have limits. And what we got here is the exact opposite of local control where some local jurisdictions controlling people outside of their jurisdiction. And that's just not right. Just like it's not right that the legislature is throwing emergency clauses on bills that are not emergencies. Eugene should not be able to dictate to people that live outside of Eugene what they can do on their property. Especially when there is not a true driver of public health behind this decision. This was more about nuisance, not about public health, because we don't allow people to burn things that are hazardous. We don't allow people to burn on days where there's not good ventilation, and we don't allow them to burn during the winter homewood heating season when we have issues with uh, getting close to the limits of air contaminants in the air shed. So it's really about, you know, just folks that don't like pollution and and in and pushing their will upon people outside of their jurisdiction yeah you know, i just it just amazes me when i see that happen and and completely ignoring and being tone deaf to the fact you know that there were you know there was board members you know and folks saying you know even the 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 community the citizens advisory committee none of them were recommending a total ban they're all recommending between one and three acres of, of, of parcel size on, on where we should go with the, the regulation. And even the chair had made a pitch uh, for being incremental. We could always come back and revisit this in a year. It was still problematic. But no, Councilor Taylor had to have her way and dictate to citizens in Lane County. And while she happened to have be able to hold sway in a meeting that was missing two members, push something through um, that basically is going to control people's lives that live outside the city of Eugene. And I don't know if El Rapa is going to be able to survive this because I think it really shows a weakness in the El Rapa structure. And it may be uh, something that is, is just not survivable by the organization. We shall see in the next couple of weeks. But on that cheerful note, this is a free-for-all day, and I've kind of been yakking for a half hour here, uninterrupted other than a couple comments by Robin, and that kind of gets boring. I'd rather hear from you. So give me a call, 646-721-9887. Just press one, lets Robin know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646 721 9887. 
And you can let me know what you think about cap and invest and the legislature ramming stuff through in a short session. And remember when they sold us on short sessions, what they were saying during the campaign to approve short sessions? Wasn't it supposed to be about fixing bills, you know, that kind of had mistakes in them so we didn't have to wait two years to fix bills and adjusting budgets and all that because two years was a long time to project spending and everything. And it might actually help us avoid always kicking the kicker and stuff like that. But, you know, they're turning these short sessions into many long sessions and trying to deal with hugely complex legislation. So give me a call if you have an opinion about that. Give me a call if you have an opinion about open burning and the idea of the city of Eugene being able to dictate policy to folks that live in the county. I'd like to know your opinion of that one. And if there's anything else on your mind, because we got some pretty interesting stuff in the news lately. Um, yesterday, an audit came out from Secretary of State Richardson on the Oregon Liquor Control Commission's oversight of the recreational marijuana uh, system, in particular, whether they can control the inventory and make sure it's not being diverted out into the black market. And he basically came to the conclusion that, no, they don't have enough inspectors to actually control the system as, as it exists and that, you know, they need help there. They need help in their IT systems and a few other things. And, and it was a really interesting statistic was we basically have one inspector for 83 marijuana businesses they're supposed to be inspecting. And that's everything from making sure they're not selling to underage people at a retail outlet to whether a grower is actually accurately following the tagging and, and seed to sale is kind of a misnomer. It's really from clone to sale because they actually clip off a section of a plant and they um, put it in a rooting solution and grow roots and then clone it so they can control exactly the, the hereditary of each plant and, and, and also control the sex because they really only want to be growing female uh, plants. I know too much about pot growing after having, having toured a facility last week. Um, <laughs> but you think about trying to track these growers and they're outdoor growers and indoor growers and everything else. And, and at the same time, you're trying to go around and, and do sting operations to make sure they're not selling to underage people. And then you're also trying to make sure that they're not diverting product once they purchase it from a grower. Um, and accurately accounting for it, everything's cash. Having one inspector for 83 businesses, you know, that, that's a, a big load to keep track of. Alaska and Nevada, their average is one for every 18 marijuana businesses. So if that gives you an idea how far behind the curve, we need about, you know, a good two to, to four times more inspectors in the state of Oregon to, to prevent diversion in the black market. And that doesn't even address the medical marijuana side of things, which is completely unregulated practically. So that, that's, you know, we've talked about that on the Bose Nose Show here before, just about the whole issue of the grows and the diversion into the black market and how the folks that are willing to divert in the black market might be willing to do other things and not such great neighbors. So, you know, that's where most of my constituent complaints are coming from now is folks that are growing, quote, medical side because it's pretty well unregulated and uh, they've got all sorts of activities going on in their properties 
beyond just growing marijuana. Um, so kind of an interesting topic in itself. Uh, spend hours on it. You know, we talked about it before on the Bose Nose Show, the whole issue of, of how the legislature kind of opened the door to all that stuff, didn't, you know, uh, preempted the counties from doing controls and then, then lifted that preemption, but didn't exempt us from Measure 49 claims. So we still can't really control the industry. Um, and, you know, that shows up in the number of complaints we're getting. So, you know, that that's going on here in Oregon. We can talk pot, we can talk carbon, we can talk open burning, or we can talk about initiatives and a few other things. And, you know, I, I, I got a new opponent in my race for re-election. And, you know, I'm, I'm up for re-election this year. Uh, May is the, the election for uh, these nonpartisan county commissioner races. And um, top two end up in the November general election. Unless one person can get more than 50% of the vote, then they're the only person on the ballot in November. And previously, I had had a gentleman out of Junction City, uh, David Goldberg, who had filed against me. Uh, and now I had somebody, but he he's not raising any money. He doesn't have a political action committee. Um, so he's not um, a typical candidate. Uh, he just filed to file, I think, somewhat. I don't think he's um, making a large effort to, to win election. Uh, pretty tough to, to uh, get your message out unless you're raising money to get your message out when the size of our district is the size of Rhode Island and there's 75,000 people out in the district you need to talk to in that district that's spread out over the size of Rhode Island. So if you're not raising money, you're probably not a terribly serious candidate. But Monday, a new candidate entered the race uh, by the name of Nora Kent. And I, I, I welcome the fact that she's bringing another choice for the voters. I'm, I'm never against the voters having a choice um, and always believe in, in uh, you know, giving voters a choice and allowing the voters to vote. But I have to take issue with her announcement and the way she's presented herself uh, and why she says she's running. One of the things in her announcement that was just a patently false was she noted that I voted for my own pay raise was one of the reasons she was running. <clears throat> a little bit of research, Nora, and you probably could have not made that mistake. I am the only county commissioner that voted all three times I had the chance to against raising our wages back in 2016. The only county commissioner that voted all three times against raising our wages. In fact, I was the county commissioner that made all the motions, forced the issue that cut our half-time assistance out of our, our budget that reduced our pay by two, our, our, our income by 2% when I got rid of our deferred comp and cut our office budgets first by about $4,000 and then by another $6,000 a year to where we only get $4,000 a year to run our, our offices when they used to spend $14,000 a year. So I'm, I am the commissioner that has actually initiated cutting my own salary and voted against raising my salary. So Nora, do a little research next time before you put out a press release. 
and, and realize that I did not vote to raise my pay. I'm the one and only commissioner that voted three times against raising my own pay. And then after the pay raise was approved by other commissioners, I actually took my pay raise and put a good portion of it into charitable contributions. So just so you know, Nora, <laughs> be a little careful about that. But then the, the thing that really, I think, and one of the reasons Nora's running and the folks that are backing her are all tied to these two uh, uh, citizens initiatives on aerial spray and community rights. And she says that I have blocked people's right to vote uh, in her press release. And I, and I, I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to flip open maybe this ISLA news article here just to make sure I get, get her wording right. That, um, citing that said commissioner, the commissioner's denial of a public vote on aerial spray. I challenge you, Nora, here on the Bose No Show, Ms. Kent, please find where I voted to block the citizens voting on aerial spray. Please show me where the Board of Commissioners has taken any action relative to that. And my guess is you can't because the citizens initiative process does not come before the Board of Commissioners. It's a process that's outlined in state law and statute and the Secretary of State's election rules and in our charter. And it says, you know, how many signatures, tells you how many signatures you have to gather and when they have to be turned in by, how many days the clerk has to review that, what she, you know, how she notifies you about that, you know, whether or not you have to meet single subject and a few other things. All those things are spelt out in other rules and ruled on by somebody other than the Board of Commissioners. And there's everything's prescriptive. If you turn in the right number of ballots, you meet all those other tests for language, et cetera, and you go on the ballot. We can't stop you from going on the ballot. We don't have that power. It's not prescribed in our charter or under state law. Now, what's happened is there's been a lawsuit challenging the fact that they feel that those two particular initiatives violate a piece of Oregon revised statutes about having a separate vote on separate decisions that amend a county charter or the Constitution. And that lawsuit has held up having them placed on the ballot because they the judge in that lawsuit gave an order out to the the plaintiffs and and the defendants that basically said prior to being submitted to the voters that had to be reviewed for whether it met separate vote and if it did not meet the separate vote test it could not go on the ballot so it was a judge's order that is now preventing it from going on the ballot. Now that judge's order is under um, appeal. An appeal hearing was last Friday, and he may turn around and, and um, allow it to go on the ballot. Once again, the commissioners are not involved in that decision. Ms. Kent and and the folks out there that are that are you know claiming that somehow or another, Commissioner Bozovich is holding up their their right to initiative is a completely false accusation. I don't have the power to 
hold up their right to the initiative. It's not part of the powers of the Board of Commissioners. The citizens initiative process is completely prescriptive, mandated through statute. There is no point where the, the commissioners make a decision. And if, and if if Ms. Kent can show me where we made a decision or someplace we failed to make a decision that could have placed it on the ballot or something like that, I'd like to know where that role is in state law or in the county charter or county code, where I have the power to do that. Now, there's a separate process that we've been asked to look at, and we're going to hold a work session on it uh, coming up here in March about whether we could refer the refer the two questions as ordinances. That is a completely separate process. The initiative process is done by citizens. There is no involvement of the Board of Commissioners. Referral process, yes, that is the Board of Commissioners process, and it takes active action by the Board of Commissioners to refer. Now, if the referral is for a charter amendment, there's still the issue of separate vote because that applies to any charter amendment, whether it's a citizen initiative or a commissioner referral. But if it's an ordinance that gets doesn't have to have the, the uh, separate vote, but an ordinance is just a law and can be changed by a future board by a simple majority vote. So, but also anything that's referred by the board means we're taking positive action to do it, which means we have to do things that are within our authority. And unfortunately, um, there's a good chance that both these initiatives that they're asking us to refer as ordinance violate state law, which would make us would make us be placing something on the ballot that we know violates state law, which is questionable whether we're, we are allowed to do that. But getting back to the original question of have I done anything to stop the voters from being able to vote on aerial spray? And the answer is no. And I, and I wish that that side would be a little bit more honest about how they talk about that. But I think part of it is, is so many people get confused about, about wording. And, and I, I actually sent an email out to one of their, their supporters, uh, Logan Overton, kind of explaining four terms that they keep using interchangeably, but are actually varied terms and need to be carefully used because they mean very different things. And the four terms that people get mixed up are initiative, referral, yeah, those are the, the first two. And the second two is the difference between a charter amendment and an ordinance. You know, they, 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 they kind of are very loose with how they speak with things and they interchange those four terms and, and they have very different meetings and very different, you know, processes and legal constraints. But the, the big thing is the initiative is a system of direct legislation by the people. And that's a term that's defined in Oregon law as that. It's how citizens write laws. So it's direct legislation by the people. There is no role for a legislative body in that. When Measure 5 was put on the ballot, there was no role for the Oregon legislature in 
writing the ballot measure, gathering the signatures, reviewing the signatures, you know, reviewing the ballot measure for legality, all that stuff happened outside of the state legislature. They don't have any role in citizen initiative. Just like, you know, any the initiatives that are happening here in Lane County, the, the aerial spray and the community rights initiative, there is no role for the legislative body, the board of commissioners, to have in that because it's direct legislation of the people. So understand initiative is direct legislation of the people. Referral, which is short for the term referral to the voters, is legislation written by a legislative body but referred to the voters for vote. And, and a, you know, initiatives can be charter amendments or ordinances and referrals can be charter amendments or ordinances. But the big difference is initiatives, citizens, the people, referrals, the board of commissioners, action of the board, legislative body. It may be going to a vote of the people the way it is. Now, the, the second part of that is the difference between a constitutional amendment or a uh, home rule county charter amendment, which is the chart, which is the constitution for home rule county versus an ordinance or a statute. Now, when you go to amend the founding document, which is what the Constitution is, or the Home Rule Charter of, of a government, you have to do that in accordance to the amendment procedures that were written into that document, which require a vote of the people. You cannot amend a state constitution by vote of the legislature. You cannot amend the county charter by a vote of the Board of Commissioners. They have to go to a vote of the people. Now, an ordinance or a statute can be passed by a simple majority of a legislative body. It's just a law. It has to be within the powers described under those founding documents, a charter or constitution, but it's just a law and can be changed in the future by a simple vote also. I mean, there's a little bit more to it in Lane County. If we pass an ordinance which goes into our county code, we actually have to have two readings of that ordinance. And the first reading has to be at least two weeks ahead of the second reading, which where we, and we have to hold a public hearing to, to write law. So there's opportunity for public input. Um, the legislature is kind of demonstrating how not to do laws uh, up there with the cap and trade system. But that's a whole different thing. But that, that's really understanding that an ordinance you know, has, is, is actually written by the governing body is, is, makes it a positive action of the governing body. And a referral is a positive action of the governing body. So in that, we're exercising our authority under the, under the charter, if, if there's a board of commissioners, and we're constrained by the limits of that authority, which is we have to act within state law because we are a subdivision of the state. And one of the first things I did is becoming a board of commissioner was take an oath of office that I was gonna obey all the laws of the state and the federal laws and constitutions. And uh, part of that, those laws basically say that um, as long as I'm acting within my authority, I've got 
immunity from uh, civil litigation to a certain extent, as long as I was acting within the authority as a commissioner, the county will have to defend me. And, and if I was acting within my authority and it turns out there's some kind of damages and a settlement paid, the taxpayers in general pay that settlement, not Jay Bozovich personally. The exception to that under Oregon law is if you act outside of your authority knowingly, particularly. Even if you act outside your authority unknowingly, you have some liability, but knowingly acting, you definitively have liability. And in fact, the government is not even obligated to defend you in court if they have determined that you knowingly violated your authority. Short memories here for folks sometimes in Lane County, but we actually had that happen uh, back in about 2009, 2010. If we remember the whole issue of uh, violation of public meetings laws here and a suit from uh, L.I. Dumdi, a former county commissioner against existing county commissioners because she was so upset about how government was being run. Uh, and it turned out that two commissioners were found by a judge to have willfully violated their authority and made them personally liable for damages in this case, which also would have made them liable for legal costs of, of the plaintiff, which were running you know, well past a quarter million dollars at that point. Um, the defendants and the plaintiff and everybody got together and we signed an agreement and everybody walked away with the two county commissioners uh, agreeing to pay $20,000 out of their personal funds for that liability to settle the lawsuit. And Lane County had to pay $250,000 to to, for the legal fees on the dumb dice case. Doesn't include how much we spent defending those commissioners up to that point. And, and we had to hire outside attorneys because there was conflicts of interest because the county council's office was involved as a witness. So we ran up another half million dollars in, in legal fees. So ultimately it cost over three quarters of a million dollars because a couple commissioners willfully violated their authority. So when you get to where back to the referral process, we're taking an action. And if we're referring a measure that might willfully violate state law, we might be setting up the Lane County taxpayers for another three quarter million dollar hit. I'm not looking forward to, or more. I'm not looking forward to doing that. So as we get to that um, work session on referral, one of the main things I want to tease out is, are we setting ourselves up for possible legal action? And I want to understand that before I take any action as commissioner, because my most important duty is protecting the taxpayers and acting within my authority, really. That oath I take very seriously that I took my first day of office, and really that's an important thing to me. So, long ways around to getting to that, but uh, that's really what's important to me is really that, that acting within my authority, and it wouldn't matter what initiative was coming before us. As I told people, if it was the Oregonians for immigration reform coming to me with initiative that said that we would require Lane County to expend local funds to check people's immigration status um, as they are applying for, let's say, uh, health benefits at Lane County, 
which is specifically prohibited under state law, if they're asking for us to refer an ordinance to the voters on that, I would be asking the exact same question about would I be willfully and knowingly violating my authority by referring a question to the voters that I know violates state law. So, you know, it doesn't matter what the content is, it's the actions and the ultimate liability and and I would be placing the county taxpayers under and myself. Because frankly, I'd like to keep my house. So um, that's that's really what's at stake when people ask us to refer things. And we have to be careful about that, that we are actually referring stuff that's within our authority to refer. And uh, that's what we'll be looking at in March when we look at all those um, work sessions on the initiative and referral process in March. So I've got a couple minutes left in the Bo's Nose show here. I've got time for at least one phone call if you want to get in here, 646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And we'll have a quick talk here on the Bo's Nose show call. And in fact, you know, I usually make these shows an hour, but we extended last week because we got a couple calls right at the end of the show. One of the things, the beauty of being on internet radio is I am not stuck with a time format. And we actually have, we set ourselves up for 90 minutes to do this show just in case we run over. So don't be afraid to be a late caller to the Bo's Nose Show. I will extend the time to get the conversation completed. So again, 646-721-9887. Just press one you want to get on the show. And I think I covered everything I wanted to cover today except for the, the sales tax up in Hood River County. That's something they're getting yeah. ready hey, to do. Hey, Jay, can I jump in there. for a second? Sure. Um, before we change topics real quick here, can you, uh, going back to the emergency clause, can you give a, a quick summary on what constitutes an emergency? Um, they haven't defined that. That is completely self-defined by the body um, imposing it right now under the law. Um, and that's one of the things that there's a, there's a, was an initiative petition being circulated to actually make a definition of that. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I really support the initiative process. I hope they can get enough signatures because I think they had a good definition. But Really, um, mm -hmm. the emergency cause they throw, throw on the end of a bill basically says, and declaring an emergency and making effective immediately this, this upon, upon signature of the governor or upon uh, approval. Almost all the ordinances Lane County passes under our charter have to have 30 days to take effect from the date they're approved. Right. So there's time for folks to go out and gather signatures to place it on the ballot. You know, you know, before it goes into effect. What happens, you know, the emergency clause, they can put it on whatever they feel like. They put it on a bill, a background check bill for gun, for uh, gun sales, claiming that was an emergency. You know, that that couldn't wait till the governor, you know, the, the proper uh, dates to be uh, put in force. It's not like it, it delays uh, the enforcement of a bill a long time, you know, it, it's usually um, 90 days from the end of the legislative session or something like that. So it's, it's, you know, not a long time period. 
And it really puts, if somebody wants so they, to actually gather signatures and place on the ballot, you have to hustle. Right. So basically, they, they found a back door around the, um, the people, so to speak. Right. Yeah, as I'm being falsely accused of blocking the initiative process here in Lane County, the Democrat majority up in the state legislature is actually blocking it through using the emergency clause on bills that are not emergencies. Think about that one for a minute. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it, that is that is very dangerous as far as uh, power goes. And taking away the, the, the civil liberties. And it's one of the reasons why it should be limited, and I support that um, initiative petition that's going around to limit the emergency clause. Um, so uh -huh. I think it's called No Fake Emergencies or something like that is the, the website for the petitions if they're get, still circulating. I'm not sure. Um, but that's, you know, we're, we're kind of out of time here for the Bose No Show. We'll talk about sales tax maybe next week. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's not going to go away in Oregon. And the idea of local sales taxes by a county is what's being proposed up in, in the uh, gorge. And I want to hear what folks locally have to say about that, because everyone's talking about we ought to have more uh, patrol officers. Should we have a local sales tax? I'm not real supportive of it personally, but I want, I, I'm willing to hear from you. So I appreciate everybody listening to the Bose Nose Show today. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and hopefully we'll be back on a regular time. I was just trying to bring up my calendar just to make sure I'm not promising something I can't deliver. Um, <laughs> yes, it looks like normal time next week, which is Wednesdays at 4 o'clock for the next edition of the Bose Nose Show. Thank you for listening today, and uh, enjoy this incredible winter weather we're having here in the northwest sure glad i'm not on the east coast where it's plenty cold icy and snowy just one of those winters where we're having a great one and they're having a bad one and uh we'll talk to you next week again thank you for listening and uh have a great week Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.